Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke Master Speaker Series podcast, where we host open-ended conversations with business leaders and world-class investors who share stories, lessons learned, and market insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com to see videos of these podcasts and to learn more about our firm. I'm excited to have Bob Prince as my guest today. Bob is the co-CIO of Bridgewater Associates, the largest hedge fund manager in the world, and a firm that is well known for its macroeconomic perspectives. Bob will share his views on the uniqueness of the current economic environment, the risks of rising inflation, how to invest in today's low interest rate climate, and other major concerns looking ahead. I hope you enjoy the discussion. So let's jump right in. We live in extraordinary times, uh, to say the least, on so many levels. Bob, uh, please uh, share your high-level thoughts about where we are in the economy and markets. Thanks, Alex. The um, big headlines are that you know this is a very different type of economic environment than we've been in, not just because of the virus, but also because of the nature of the, the cause-effect linkages in the economy, the zero interest rates, and the nature of the fiscal and monetary responses. And so uh, I think that there are three big things to really register that define this environment. And that is, number one, we've had a collapse in global income. We've bounced some from the bottom, but still we're very depressed. You've had a collapse in global income caused by a pandemic with interest rates at zero. And pretty much everything follows from that. And, that, and, and it's, that's a radically different in, environment or downturn than we're used to. Typically, a downturn is caused by a tightening of monetary policy, a contraction in credit, and then a contraction in spending and income. That only sets the stage to where you can then have a cut in interest rates and an expansion of credit to come out of it, right? But in this case, the leading influence was the collapse in income because people just stayed home. They stopped working. They stopped generating income. Income is usually the last thing to fall. This time, it's the first thing to fall. The cause is a pandemic, not a tightening of monetary policy. It's still a highly uncertain environment related to how that will transpire. And interest rates are zero. And so you lack the ability to cut interest rates to pull out of it. And so not only have we not had a decline in corporate credit or a decline in credit that sets the stage for a subsequent bounce, but actually in this case, we've had a rise in debts as we've gone into the contraction. And so since you've had a rise in debts and you've had a a lowering of interest rates, you have much less ability to create a self-sustaining expansion once the fiscal stimulus has gone away. So those are the three big conditions that that define this environment. And that really creates, I think, three really big investment implications. So number one, you've got a reflation going on. You can't cut interest rates, but you've got what we call MP3, monetary policy three, which is uh, monetary policy one is an interest rate driven monetary policy. Monetary policy two is a QE driven policy. MP3 is what kicks in when, when those two are extinguished which is the combination of fiscal policy supported by monetary policy. So we're in an environment of a very aggressive reflation uh, driven by fiscal policy supported by monetary policy. And that's producing uh, a lot of liquidity because literally the, the process of stimulation is to send checks out to replace the lost income. 
but not all of that money that's received is getting spent. Probably 50 cents on the dollar is getting spent. And that's producing an excess layer of cash available to go into assets. So the first thing is the reflation. The second thing is then uh, where does the money go? It goes into storeholds of wealth because the collapse level of income has a disproportionate effect on certain types of companies and countries for that matter. And where it's not having an effect is the, the assets that are more of a storehold of wealth. And so the liquidity is going into storeholds of wealth. We normally think of storeholds of wealth as wealth preservation, but in this case, they're the best performing assets because the money is flowing into those storeholds of wealth, that excess liquidity. And that's producing the third major investment theme, which is a big differentiator of outcomes because some assets really benefit from the production of liquidity. Other assets are hurt by the contraction in incomes and the differences between those two are producing substantial differences in performance. Just as a simple example, if you take in the commodity markets, you know, if you take oil prices versus gold prices, this year, gold prices are up 30%. Oil prices are down 40%. Why? Because gold is really the recipient of the liquidity to storehold of wealth, and oil is really impacted by the contraction in the economy, much more so. Another example would be in equity market sectors. The tech sector is up 20, 23%. The financial sector is down 20%. So there's a 45% difference between one sector and another. The tech sector is really the recipient of the liquidity. The financial sector is being hurt by the contraction in the economy. Uh, a 45% difference in the return so far this year, even though those two sectors are both 90, 95% correlated to the overall market every week. <laughs> so all of the wiggles are really together, but the cash flow differences are driving substantial differences in the returns of assets. So those would be my, the three big things that I would focus on. The reflation, will it work? What are the effects of it? The production of liquidity that goes into the storeholds of wealth or not. And then the differentiation of outcomes across assets that that produces. And so that the, the average is hardly representative. The differences are so big between the assets that the, hardly, the average is hardly representative of any of them. You talked about inflation. Uh, Bob, let me ask you this. Uh, you've written about the risk of inflation. We haven't had high inflation since the 1970s. The Fed's mandate is changing to try to create inflation. They have the willingness, they potentially have the ability to do so. What's your view about uh, where this ends? Are we going to see inflation? And then I'd say more importantly, what's the implication for investors, many of which are underweight inflation hedges because we haven't had inflation for so long? Well, I think to understand inflation, you have to think about how prices are formed. And inflation is just a weighted average of a bunch of prices. And for any price, it's how many dollars are chasing it relative to how much quantity is available. And we've already had asset price inflation because we have uh, a lot of money, a lot of dollars chasing a certain quantity of assets. And so we've had asset price inflation. We haven't had uh, goods inflation because there's not that much the demand. So demand is low. Demand is low right now because we're in a you know a pandemic. But looking forward, the challenge of demand is the fact that there's not much room for a credit expansion. You know, when you go back to the 60s and the 70s, that inflationary spiral was not caused by money printing. It was caused by easy monetary policy and an expansion of credit. And as credit expands, more borrowing is more spending, and then that's higher than, than quantity available, and so prices go up. So the challenge uh, in the last 
let's call it what since 1990, almost 30 years in Japan to produce inflation, particularly since they've been trying harder to do it in the last 10 years. Europe, the United States, uh, it's been it's been 20 years since U.S. inflation has traded, you know, been above two percent. The lack of inflation is mostly due to the fact that global economies are already over indebted. And if you have over indebted economies, you have to cut interest rates even lower and lower to stimulate a credit expansion. But now we're zero. So you can't cut the rates below zero and you have a lot of debt. It's going to be difficult to produce a credit expansion coming out of this, particularly given what I said, which is that, you know, we're expanding credit as the economy is going down because people are borrowing money to make up for their lost income. So it will be a sluggish economic environment coming out of it. You're not going to have a lot of demand, but you can still have inflation. There are two ways that that inflation can come about. The first is through currency depreciation. The fact that you're printing the money and uh, making money less valuable is ultimately reflected in the exchange rate of your currency, which is getting reflected in the gold prices. So gold prices are going up, not because gold is getting more valuable, it's because money is getting less valuable. And so essentially the price of money in gold terms is going down right? The value of money in gold terms is going down. And we just see that as the price of gold in money term. So, but it's due to the printing of money and the decline in the value of fiat money. That has been manifest in gold prices because every country is doing it. You haven't really seen it reflected in one exchange rate versus another. But if you see exchange rate depreciation, and let's say if the dollar was to fall relative to the Asia currencies, for example, and, and the RMB in China, you would see import inflation and you would see you would see it start to develop through the currency. So the currency is typically one area. It's the most likely area that you get a monetary inflation as opposed to, let's say, a cost push inflation driven by commodities. The second way that you get the inflation is through capacity destruction. In other words, if you have such a prolonged environment of economic decline that companies go out of business, and even within certain sectors, you know, imagine that if all the restaurants in town go out of business, you know, it's pretty easy for the last restaurant to raise their prices. So if you have capacity destruction from the collapse level of economic activity, the longer that lasts and the greater the, the capacity destruction, when you do get demand on the other side, you have the potential for inflation on that side because you've contracted quantity, right? So those are the two forces it would be monetary driven. It would be capacity driven, probably unlikely to be demand driven because of the inability to produce a credit expansion. But by and large, the thing not to be forgotten is that uh, since Paul Volcker in 1979, the purpose of central banks, one after another, after another, after another, was to bring inflation down. And eventually you had, you, you had that happen everywhere in the world and they won the war. They beat inflation all around the world. Now, the battle is to bring it up. And so virtually every central bank in the world is now dedicated to pushing inflation up. And so most of the time they get what they want. We did a study back to 1800, 127 cases of financial panic across 39 countries. And once it gets to the point that it's bad enough, and it's like you have that whatever it takes moment, over 90% of the time, government gets what they want. The sequence, it's important to understand you, there's collateral damage along the way. The sequence is typically four stages. A, monetary easing. That's good for everybody. Everybody loves that. Fiscal easing. 
that, that that's good for the economy, but you start to accumulate debts. Then if, if that doesn't work, you go to debt restructuring. And then if that doesn't work, you go to monetary restructuring. So you can always get there. You can always reflate. It's just a question of how far you have to go and what the collateral damage is going to be on the way to getting there. So far, we've got monetary and fiscal. 10 years ago, we only had monetary. I mean, well, we had a short burst, but by and large, we've had monetary for the last 100 years. Now it's monetary and fiscal, but the sequence goes to debt restructuring, then it goes to monetary restructuring, which is the exchange rate. So those, that's what we have ahead of us. And while the government might get what they want in terms of that reflation, the collateral damage gets bigger in terms of uh, transfer of wealth as you progress along that chain. So would gold look relatively attractive given that backdrop? Uh, yeah, it's um, very underheld. It's a diversifier. It gives you an inflation hedge. It gives you a monetary hedge. The other thing about gold is that there's no interest rate penalty now to hold it. So it's a free hedge. <laughs> the way we look at that is we look at gold as a currency, essentially the flip side of, ex- of fiat money. And we view it as more of a hedging vehicle that you can continue to hold an asset let me say the problem with gold is you don't get a risk premium, but you can hold an asset and get a risk premium in your assets. And you can actually hedge the currency denomination of your assets into gold. So you could hold stocks and ounces of gold, right? Or you can hold bonds and ounces of gold. It should be thought of as an exchange rate that you denominate your assets in, in the forward market for gold. And that allows you to continue to earn whatever risk premium you can get. And, but yeah, that's, a, that's a, an attractive place to be. I think a very interesting data point that I think surprises a lot of investors is since we came off the gold standard in our early uh, 70s, gold and global equities have almost the same return for almost 50 years with you know, zero correlation, obviously. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a data point that I think surprises a lot of people. Bob, uh, what, what is your response to you know, where do investors get returns? Uh, and then one thing that I would also mention is with rates being zero, the one asset that you could think of as being attractive is leverage. And obviously, that can doom you as well. So you know, talk yeah. to us about, about your perspective. The first thing you should do is reset your sights on what a good return is. When the interest rate is zero and the real interest rate is negative, and assets compete with one another, so all assets are competing with zero cash and zero bonds, their yields are going to be close to zero, closer to zero than they used to be. Their returns are going to be closer to zero, right? So you got to reset your sights. What's realistic? But I think that if, uh, and diversification is key, so don't take what I'm about to say wrong, but if you had to sort of structure the most likely path to good returns, uh, I think that you'd have to take a longer time horizon. I think you need to think in terms of five and 10 years. I think you need to think in terms of cash flows and balance sheets. And I think you need to think in terms of exchange rates and interest rates. Central banks have, uh, you know, what they used to do is when they use monetary policy, they would steepen the yield curve, right? They would drive the short rate down in relation to the long rate. But what they've done now is they can't do that anymore. So they've driven the long rate down in relation to assets. And so they've steepened the risk curve, but flattened the yield curve. They've made bonds a funding vehicle, just like they used to make cash a funding vehicle. They've made bonds a funding vehicle at zero they're trying to get you to fund at zero and buy something, right? (laughs) To keep this economy going. So that's actually an interesting possibility is at least you could fund at zero, right? So So the liability is very, very cheap at zero. The second thing 
is then what currency is that liability in? Dollars are in, in abundant supply. And I think your Asian economies and currencies are bound to have a secular rise over time. If you think about China wanting to have a, uh, you know, the RMB as a reserve currency, you want a strong currency. You know, the Deutschmark was a strong currency. I could see them letting it kind of very gradually trend up over a period of time in an environment where it's discounted to fall because they actually have a positive interest rate, right? So the forward, the forward exchange rate for RMB is at a discount of 3% a year, because the bond differential is 3% a year. So over 10 years, it's priced, it's priced in to fall 30%. And yet you could imagine that there would be a gradual upward trend over 10 years. What if it was 10%? Um, and we've, we've also started to see a little bit of a turn there recently. And uh, it's also somewhat of a hedge, you know, against the, the, uh, the environment, you know, difficulty, political problems in the United States and so forth. So funding in dollars at zero, assets. And then I would say you, when you go to cash flows and balance sheets, you go to not, where do you have nominal GDP growth? Nominal GDP growth in the US in the next 10 years will probably be maybe two or 3% nominal growth. Europe is two to three, uh, but let's say um, Asia is probably six to eight. Pick your country. They're increasingly integrated. We think of it as an Asia block. There's actually more trade between the Asian economies than there is between the European economies. And it's very synergistic trade, mostly driven by enterprising businesses just trying to improve their economics. So you're in an environment there where you're probably going to get four to four to 6% productivity growth over the next decade, a positive inflation rate. So that's a six to 8% nominal growth rate. But even their interest rates are dragged down by the zero interest rates in, in the West because you know 3, 3% is very attractive in relation to zero. The 3% is pretty low in relation to 6 or 8% nominal. So that, you know, where can you get, where can you get cash flows that track nominal growth rates that are above the interest rates in that area? And then think about that for the long term. And then I think balance sheets plays into that because in particularly in the next year, uh, year or two, because as long as we're in this virus situation, I think of it as a duration mismatch. It's a different kind of duration mismatch. It's the duration or time frame over which the virus has an impact on the level of economic activity. 18 to 24 months is what most people would suggest relative to the duration of your, of your balance sheet to survive that. How long can you survive that with cash in, the, cash in the bank or whatever? And how long can governments come in and supplement what you don't have? Pretty much every country in the world had the ability to uh, help its citizens for three or four months. Uh, okay, well, we've had that. How about the next three or four months? How about two or three or four more after that? How long do they have the ability and the willingness to keep throwing money at people to help augment the, uh, a lower level of income? Governments, countries are going to fall, fall off the track. They're going to they're gonna lose the ability to do that. And then that's going to amplify the economic effects of weak balance sheets in those economies. So you want to be looking for reliable cash flows that, that track nominal GDP growth. And you want to be looking for quality balance sheets that give you sustainability through this adverse set of circumstances that get you to the other side to take advantage of those that have fallen by the wayside. And that applies not just to companies, but it applies to countries. 
because some countries have strong balance sheets and some countries have weak balance sheets. Unfortunately, the U.S. is weakening its balance sheet through the accumulation of debt, through the poor management of the virus. Asian economies, they're not fighting the virus by printing and borrowing. They're fighting it with masks that are very cheap <laughs> so, or other me- trace tra- mechanisms that don't, that don't have such a high economic cost. So they're actually, pres- they started with stronger balance sheets and are preserving those balance sheets at the same time as the West is deteriorating theirs and printing the money. And so I would be, I think you want to be thinking in terms of a decade, you want to be thinking in terms of cash flows and balance sheets. And that that takes a while to accumulate. It's not an overnight thing. Cash flows and balance sheets over a decade. And what are you funding in? What currency and what interest rate are you funding in? And the spread between those, it's much more of an asset liability position than just an asset position. And if you think about it in those terms, you're gonna find more opportunities than if you just think of it uh, in the traditional ways. Bob, Bob, you and your colleagues have written a lot about the wealth gap and the rise of populism. What would you say to just, uh, I guess, the the thing that keeps you up at night as well? Well, the most uh, sort of threatening set of conditions includes those forces. Uh, and you combine that with zero interest rates, and it's a very uh, it's a very risky combination because you see zero interest rates means that the ability to reverse a downturn is out of the central bank's hands. That means it's in the hands of government. So if monetary policy is largely powerless on its own, and now you're dependent on government to manage the economy. And in government, you've got polarization driven by populism and conflict. You can't count on good economic management. And then when you combine that with geopolitical conflict, as the rise of China competes with the United States and, um, and everything that goes with that, you have the potential for various types of war. You got the potential. We already have a trade war, technology war. You can have capital wars. China holds a, used to hold a trillion dollars of U.S. bonds. They seem to be selling them gradually over time. Russia's already sold theirs. The um, capital wars t- take a lot of different forms and ultimately uh, could be military wars. And so the geopolitical conflict on top of the domestic conflict from populism, which exists in many countries from income inequality, uh, combined with zero interest rates means there's no floor under the economy. Right. And very little ability to create a boom, a boom, plenty of room for a bust and no, no way to really reverse it. And then you combine that with relatively narrow risk premiums on assets because there's been so much liquidity produced that it's it squeezed the risk premiums. So the expected returns on assets is low, starting with a zero interest rate. Everything's attractive relative to zero. A lot of liquidity. So it goes into those assets, drives the prices up, yields down. So zero interest rates pulls down the expected yield of assets takes away the ability of the central bank to put a floor into the economy, puts the pressure on the federal government to be the manager of the economy, which they're, you know, dysfunctional. So that's just a very risky set of circumstances. Well, Bob, thank you for giving your time and sharing your insights. Uh, I enjoyed the back and forth and I hope our viewers did as well. Thank you for listening to the Master Speaker Series podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. You may email us with questions or recommended guest speakers at info at 
please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities, trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. (music) Thank you.